0: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin here in my basement overseeing, once again, a distributed operations, operations of Intrepid podcast. I'm very happy to be joined remotely today by three of our other Intrepid Podcast co-editors, Leah West, Jess Davis, and Michael Nesbitt. We really need to look at four cases that are at various stages of the criminal justice process uh, that have important implications for national security. So thanks so much for joining me, guys. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: So let's start off with what I think is perhaps the major headline here, which is the uh, Ortis case. Ortis... um, was granted bail, which I got to be honest with you, shocked me. And you lawyer folks tried to calm me down <laughs> by talking about how it's very unusual for someone who has committed a nonviolent offense to be denied bail. But it just seemed a little bit shocking to me because he's someone who has such operational knowledge, such sensitive knowledge and could would probably have some idea of how the RCMP was, in fact, even monitoring him. So that was then revoked on November 8th. And I was wondering if I could get your a take on it, because I was led to believe it's actually highly unusual for someone to basically be denied, be denied bail once it's been granted.
2: So I'll jump in and just agree, say yes. Um, so Mr. Ortiz originally was granted bail, and... Um, The presumption when we are dealing with bail is that someone gets bail, right? So that's always our starting presumption, except for in certain cases. Um, And Mr. Ortiz, there was some discussion in some media about how he was being charged with offenses that reversed that onus. Mike, jump in if I'm wrong. My understanding, my reading of the criminal code, he he's not actually charged with any of those offenses. He's not being charged here with murder and, or treason. So um, despite the fact that what he did may end up being you know, what some might dub or use the term to be treasonous, that he wasn't actually charged with that. So the starting presumption for Mr. Ortis is that he gets bail. Um, there is three reasons why typically somebody could be denied bail. Um, So one is that they are a flight risk, right? Two is that they're a a risk to the violence um, to the public. And three is that it's in the administration of justice um, or that, you know, releasing this person would put the administration of justice into disrepute. These are like, I'm not being very specific in how I describe that, but those are the three kind of general reasons why. And so um originally, my belief was that Mr. Ortis, given the types of charges he was um, facing, um, that potentially, depending on if he was actually working hand in hand with a foreign government, there could be arguments to say that he was a flight risk. Um, he's not charged with any type of violent crime here. Um, but... Um, Uh, So that was what I originally uh, believed might be the argument put forward, along with that third prong about the administration of justice and just the nature of the types of crimes that he is being charged with. Again, um, just to remind everybody, so Ortis is being charged with um, inappropriately accessing a computer, mischief to a computer, and um, trying to um, basically share information that um, the government is taking efforts to protect with uh, either a foreign government or foreign or a terrorist entity. Um, we have no reason to believe it's a terrorist entity, so people are presuming it's a foreign government. Um, so he was originally granted bail with pretty you know, strict conditions. He had to live with an ankle monitor with his parents in BC. They were also um, sureties, so there was a monetary um, connection there uh, as well, I believe. Again, Mike, jump in if I'm wrong. And um, he, um, these are pretty tight conditions, right? So we also talk about the bail ladder, so the different provisions that can be um, mounted on someone if they are ground to bail. These are like the highest levels of rungs, right? The fact that you have to live under somebody's roof with monitoring is really strict conditions. The Crown sought to have the bail varied. So this isn't, we don't think of it as an appeal, it's a variation on bail. Um, And they went back to court and they presented additional evidence to the court, um, which is under publication ban, um, but by all accounts was pretty damning. And the judge, for reasons that have not yet been published, revoked Mr. Ortiz's bail. And from what I've been told, RCMP were waiting at that house, ready for him to be um, taken back to custody um, while the judge was making their decision. So he was swiftly brought back um, and is now in custody in Ottawa. Um, so we don 't know what it was, um, but in the interim of his arrest um, and what's gone and um, there was searches of his home, they found lots of computers in his home. I believe it was like twenty four computers in his home. so there may have been or i 'm being told more computers in his home. Um, so there may have been something that they they found in the intervening period that they could use to justify the bail variation.
1: So I have a question, Leah, about the publication ban. So can you walk us through how normal or abnormal it is to have a publication ban on these proceedings? Because, in you know, in my view, there's a huge public interest in knowing a lot about this case, but it's also a really, um, I think, fairly unique case in
2: Canadian law. So can you walk us through that? Yeah, so in this case, um, a large, uh, well, the Crown prosecutor even kind of came out and said it in the first place, was that if Mr. Ortiz is going to get a fair trial, um, some of the information that they're using to keep him in jail, right? The, the standards of evidence that you use in a bail proceeding are not the same as the standards of evidence you use to actually prove someone's guilt. Um, they're much lower. And so the really damning information that they may be using or um, putting towards the court to get him a custodial bail, or sorry, a revocation of bail, um, is not something that you want out in the public because then the argument could be made that if he goes to a jury trial, it's really hard to get a jury who doesn't know um, all of the stamming evidence about him. It becomes harder to to um, to get a, an impartial jury and whatnot. So that would be um, a big reason why. Uh, there's also potentially the security risk, depending on what it is that what evidence they're using um, to show why Mr. Ortiz is such. Um, is so guilty and needs to be put behind bars, um, some of that, revealing some of that information publicly could be a risk to um, the, revealing additional information that's classified. It's it's hard to tell, um, or just could be injurious if released. Um, it wasn't a closed court, so I think it's more the, the latter than the former, but, sorry, the former, not the latter, um, but that's my understanding of things.
1: And then is it possible that, the information or evidence used in the bail proceeding will not actually be used
2: in his criminal proceedings yeah, that's totally possible right because um again, like the standards of evidence that you put forward in a in a in a criminal trial um, there there are standards that have to be met um, the defense can challenge um the Uh, the admission of that evidence. Um, And so this isn't tested evidence. This isn't evidence a judge has decided will go to the trier of fact. This is the crown putting its, you know, most damning case that it has right now before the court. Um, So that's part of why you wouldn't necessarily want all of that splashed across the media when you, um, when there's a potential for a jury trial.
0: Mike, did you want to come in on this? Um, do you have any views on on how all this has been handled or some of the decisions
3: Sure, just a couple of things for those who aren't familiar with the process i suppose this This is not unusual to have fights about whether someone gets bail that is to say they're they're free with restrictions or whether they will be in custody. We see this all the time, and frankly speaking i think it's un, it would be unfair me for me not to acknowledge it. It can be fairly judge specific so um, two judges can reasonably come to a different conclusion on this. And so, if especially if you're seeing more evidence come forward after the bail was granted in the first instance, this is not surprising. In terms of the publication ban, it's likewise not surprising. So, th- perhaps the best example that your listeners would be aware of would be the Toronto 18 prosecution. So, immediately after the 18 were arrested, and then they were actually only proceeded against 11 of them. So, the we call them the Toronto 11 from Within the next two minutes, the the Toronto Eleven they had a big splashy, much like what happened here. The RCMP had a big splashy um, news conference. It was televised, and then almost immediately after, as soon as we start the bail process, there was there was a complete publication ban. And in that case, interestingly, the defense challenged the publication ban. They wanted to tell their side of the story at the beginning, although sometimes it's the case, and I don't know what the case is here, that they have no interest in in the information getting out because it could be damning to the individual because, frankly speaking, the individual has not been convicted yet. They're already in custody and have not been convicted, so you probably, until you've been found guilty, don't want a whole bunch of information that makes you look bad out in the public. So it's a little unclear. It, it, to me, I just don't know where where the defense is. But it's not surprising to see someone go for a publication ban at this stage and for it to to be granted.
0: Well, thanks. I mean, that's pretty enlightening. I mean, I was looking at Ortiz's bail conditions, and one of them was actually not being able to go anywhere where there was, uh, where there was internet access. And I was trying to think of a place where there's no internet access, and it's it, it was it was really it was really strict. To be fair to the original judge, even though I think I did lose my mind on Twitter, not for the first time, not for the last time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think you know uh, that that actually puts everything into really good context. So moving on from uh, espionage to more espionage, we have another case that uh, is actually kind of getting up there. Uh, Basically, I believe this happened in 2014, the original arrest of this individual, Huang, who was trying to or had offered to sell naval secrets, I believe, or ship secrets to, uh, we believe, the, the Chinese embassy. So that case has been kind of going through the courts, but seems to be stuck. And you've recently been talking to uh, Colin Freeze in the media about this, Leah. So can you give us an update on that particular case?
2: Yeah. So I'll just um, basically read from the most recent case. So the charges against Mr. Hanks stem from an interception of a telephone call um, that Mr. Wang allegedly made to the embassy of China in Ottawa, that CSIS was um, intercepting on the basis of a warrant issued by the federal court. Now, the key thing here is that the target of the, uh, of the warrant wasn't Mr. Huang. It was um, someone or the embassy itself. So fun fact, that is a violation of international law, but we'll just we'll just table that little nugget. It's a whole, other podcast, it's whole, a whole other, other podcast, Leah. Whole other podcast. I'm um, going to table that for now. But essentially, um, originally, Mr. Huang um, wasn't challenging um, the underlying ceasefire warrant that seeded this investigation. And realistically, from what I, I can see from um, the judgments that have come out so far, the federal court, there was a brief undercover operation afterwards, but the majority of um, the evidence against Mr. Wang stems from the CSIS wiretap, uh, which was then subsequently provided from CSIS to the RCMP. Um, so what's been going on is Mr. Wang subsequently got a new lawyer. Frank Adario is a very skilled litigator in Toronto. Um, and uh, Mr. Wang and Mr. Adario have now cha- want to challenge the, um, the warrant. So um, this is not an unusual practice, especially not where the majority of the evidence stems from the warrant itself. Um, there's a couple different ways you can do that. Um, either you challenge the, you know, the facial validity of the warrant or the subfacial validity of the warrant. So, um,
0: this is but, what you know, Craig, Craig Forsees in a former life, used to talk about the fruit of the poison tree—that the original warrant wasn't legitimate, and therefore, any evidence that was collected under it is therefore not okay.
2: Precisely. So we don't need to get into that too much. But in order to do that, um, in order to challenge the warrant, you need to see the warrant um, or you need to see a good portion of the warrant. And as anyone who listens to this podcast can imagine, a warrant issued by the federal court to CSIS, to wiretap the Chinese embassy, um, is something that People don't want released or disclosed publicly. I am Um,
0: shocked. I am shocked that that is the
2: case. Shocked and appalled. I'm so much shocked. We don't know what kind of warrant this is. Whether it was a Section 16 warrant or a Section 12 warrant. Um, I don't. I haven't seen any reporting that indicates the type of warrant. So a Section 16 warrant would be a warrant to collect. Foreign intelligence, usually on behalf of the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of of National Defence, in some cases, to collect evidence that's not related to a threat to the security of Canada. But this also could have been what we call a Section 12 warrant, which is actually to collect um, information against a threat to the security of Canada. So when you're um, submitting a warrant, um, there's all kinds of good stuff that goes in there in the affidavit. You spell out to the court who your target is, why, what information you're hoping to obtain, why you need to use a certain technique and the certain types of techniques you're going to be used, what information you've gotten in the past. Um, if there, this is a renewal of a warrant, for example, what information you've gotten from the past and why you want to continue to do this kind of technique. So there's a lot of really sensitive information in a warrant. So the fact that Mr. Wang is saying, give me the goods, I want to challenge this warrant, is a nightmare for CSIS. And I'll just add that in the highly contentious time that we are in with China, anything that's being put on the table that could ruffle additional feathers is really bad for business. So essentially what we've seen happen is, and Craig has talked about this a lot in the past, this bifurcated system of where you know, they've said Mr. Wang is entitled to disclosure of the seizures warrant because that is the founding of the RCMP case against him. And the attorney general is saying, whoa, whoa, we need to protect that and made an application under what's called section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act. And so this um, process started several years ago. There's been a couple of backs and forths between the federal court, the federal court of appeal, It even um, went up to the Supreme Court, who denied leave. So basically, the federal court, um, Justice Mosley, did um, order certain information that the attorney general sought to have protected, disclosed. Um, That um, was subsequently appealed. The federal court upheld the appeal in certain cases, and in other um, cases, sent it back to the federal court to review um, in this most latest case that came out in the summer, um, the attorney general um, seems to have made an argument that there was additional grounds to seek to protect the information, a change in circumstances. I hypothesized in talking to Cohen Fries that those change in circumstances may have been the increased tensions between Canada and China, but it's really n- not clear. It, uh, that could be a total red herring. And uh, a, uh, Justice Mosley issued a, an a opinion in which, or an order, I should say, in which, again, he disclosed some of the information protected, some of the information he'd originally ordered disclosed, he decided to protect. And some of the other information he said would go out, but it could only go to the court and Mr. Huang's lawyer. So that's really interesting. Um, it's pretty unusual. Um, it's not unusual, um, and it shouldn't be a concern. Um, Mr. Adario is a well-respected officer of the court, but it's very interesting that Justice Mosley is really trying hard here to get as much information out while protecting at the same time. He's trying to walk that fine balance that we have in these cases. The other really interesting thing in reading all of this is that um, Public Prosecution Services of Canada was brought in to part of the hearings. They got to kind of observe some of what was Taking place, they're a third party to this. We need to think of them separately from the attorney general. So that's really unique. I've never seen that in a case um, like this before. And Mr. Wang's lawyer was also brought in to make um, arguments to Justice Mosley about the relevance of certain information, without the attorney general present. Kind of, um, we would imagine that he would lay out their intended defenses, how they were they were seeking to use this information. So. This is a court that's that's doing all that it can to make up for this cumbersome bifurcated system we have, where a federal court that has really like has nothing to do with the actual criminal trial is deciding what information is relevant and what information is going to be disclosed, um, and then communicating as best they can through their order back to the judge about the nature of the type of information that's been withheld. And all of this happens because we have this weird bifurcated system so that the judge that's actually going to decide what is relevant, what information needs to be admitted as evidence, and whether or not the warrant is valid is not the one deciding about disclosure. So it's just a really unique um, situation. And again, a part of the problem is, the uh, attorney general has appealed this most recent order. So it's going back to the federal court of appeal and potentially back to the Supreme court. So we've been involved in this case for about six years now, and it's gotten nowhere. And this is another problem of the bifurcated system is that it allows for interlocutory appeals, right? Usually if this was a a judgment in a, in a superior court case about a criminal case and it was about evidence, the judge would make a decision and nobody gets to appeal that until after the trial has concluded. Um, So you get through the trial and then you kind of go back and take stock. Here, that doesn't happen. At every instance, um, there's an opportunity for appeal. So we see this really dragging this case out.
0: So just to be clear, and I'm going to Oshawa this, basically, there is a court which is deciding upon which evidence can be seen by the other court. Precisely. And that can be challenged multiple times, which is why this has taken six years. Exactly. And that seems not efficient.
2: Yeah. And okay. I mean, people, and Mike has talked about this a lot, and the New Jordan rules about um, bringing somebody to trial quickly when we're, or at least more expeditiously, when we're dealing with um, a criminal prosecution. Um Here, I mean, the prosecutors, this entire thing is beyond the prosecutor's control. Um, So, you know, we don't really usually see Jordan applications, um, you know, being successfully brought when we're dealing with this bifurcated system. But you could see how someone can make the argument that this is not uh, Mr. Huang's Problem. Um, this is the attorney general trying to protect information and repeatedly appealing the judgment of the of the courts, and it's delaying Mr. Wang being brought to justice and having his stay in court and potentially, you know, um, being freed from these allegations.
3: I'm I'm going to take the opportunity to ask a question of Leah, if that's okay, because I think this is really interesting. I didn't know some of these details, so. One of the things I think is really interesting. So if you look back at old cases we've had in this in national security terrorism, that, that the stuff where this comes up, right? Where you have CSIS, you have secret information, you don't you have a bifurcated approach to determining whether the information gets in or out, et cetera. If you look back to that, one of the big problems has been almost no one's been happy with the system. So you, you have an appeal right at the beginning. to You, you have invocation of Section 38 of the um, Canada Evidence Act, and it goes to federal courts. And then in federal court, traditionally, you have an amicus, which is a friend of the court, but you don't have the defense lawyer.
0: Can I point and out then, that amicus is also a mascot, and he's great.
3: It is but a not wonderful at this mascot. Court. Yeah, he's, more yeah, mascots, the better.
0: But yeah. Supreme it's, Court uh,
2: mascot, and he's an owl. Just need to make that clear.
3: He's amazing. Please, yeah. I interrupt. Uh, no, it, but it, I will add that we should have a mask. You, you should have a mascot, Stephanie. This would we we need a ma- more mascots the better. Okay, so so we have defense lawyers who are not happy with this, right? Because you've now just had a determination about a what evidence can and cannot be seen with without the defense there to argue what their case is, uh, what sort of information they might need to give a sense of where they're going, et cetera. So you hope the amicus does most of that work, but defense still might not be happy. The prosecutors aren't happy. So this is something that I think is often overlooked. The prosecutor, likewise, could be, we saw this in the Toronto 18, where where essentially CISA shows up and says, we're going to section 38 to the federal court and the prosecutors say, well, Hey, I guess we're done for a while until you tell us what it is that can be included or not. And then the judge who's presiding on the trial isn't involved either, right? And so the whole thing goes off to this other court where you see some information, not others, and then it comes back to the original court. And the the prosecution and ceases and others will not be happy because it'll it'll usually involve some information that's being let out. And defense and Possibly the judge and possibly the prosecutor won't be very happy because they'll have no idea why this information was let in, what other information was left out, whether it was critical to the defense, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're seeing in this case, it sounds like, Leah, sorry for the long introduction here to this question, is for the first time a sort of judicially mandated addressing of this situation whereby the defense lawyer is allowed to see it instead of an amicus. But you just don't let the uh, defendant see it. And the prosecution service sounds like they're being brought in. So is this this them addressing the, the problem? So
2: I'll say that in terms of the underlying information, it wasn't, yes, the defense was brought in to address the court, but it wasn't that they instead or in lieu of an amicus got to challenge the basis for certain redactions. They really, like, the amicus was still there. And typically what happens is, like, um, the, the government will put redactions over things. And there'll be, you know, ways of indicating why certain redactions are are, are being made and why others and, you know, what the, the purpose of all of them is. And then everybody argues line by line through um, the basis. And then ultimately there's this balancing test. The um, the, the reason for it to go in favor of the, of the accused and and their interests versus the interest of national security or international affairs. And then the judge decides on the balance. And that really happens like line by line. And so that's when you would have the amicus there with the attorney general's counsel. Um, but in this case, the, um, It seems to be, and again, I'm reading an order. I don't have any firsthand knowledge that the the prosecutors and the defense were both given an opportunity to address the court so that when they were making these decisions about what actual information is going to be really relevant and not, they had the best picture possible. And then subsequently, the the issue was about, okay, um, and I can see the argument being made or at least the you know reading between the lines mr huang is being charged with trying to sell secrets to the chinese and the information that he's trying to get would be You know, very advantageous for the Chinese to have. So maybe Mr. Huang himself shouldn't be allowed to have this information, but his lawyer, in order to do his job and decide how best to challenge the underlying warrant or even to decide whether or not to drop the challenge, should have access to that information. So this is all very much the court being using ingenuity and flexibility within this statutory um, scheme to try and, you know, make more people happy, um, essentially, I think. Um, And unfortunately, I think the novelty of this is uh, leading to more opportunities for appeal because it looks different. To the court's credit, um, they're trying their best they can to balance all of these interests. Um, But, you know, the government To its credit as well, is doing its damnedest to protect information it doesn't want to be seen made public.
0: Leah, can I just ask a question? Because if we have a sponsoring member of this podcast, it is the intelligence evidence problem. But that's that's not something that is at issue here, it's the bifurcated court system. But would this be better if we were just simply able to bring court ready evidence derived from intelligence forward that we wouldn't actually need to go through this whole system? Or am I just making things no, up at this point? Because I mean, it's this all is meshing together.
2: <laughs> this is an element of the intelligence to evidence problem. Because ultimately what could happen here, right, is the judge could say, in the federal court could say, and he doesn't seem to be saying this, but we, it's hard to tell, that, yeah, like all of this information is so damning and so detrimental to national security that absolutely can't be released, right? And if that's the case, then how does Mr. Wang challenge the validity? And ultimately we could be in a situation where the superior court has no idea. Like, I mean, the, the warrant could be totally valid. It could stand up to every legal test, but the information in that warrant cannot be made public. So the underlying judge doesn't ever get to test, doesn't get to see that the warrant is valid and doesn't get to understand the basis for um, withholding the information and the fact that maybe Mr. Huang's interests aren't at all um, revealed in in that warrant itself, and that there's really really good reason for withholding it all. But the judge who's responsible for deciding um, whether or not you know this evidence or the information derived from this evidence should go forward is blind, right? And so he may say there's. I, there's no way to prove this case without that information. I have to stay the charges. So that this would be an example of intelligence to evidence if we got to the point where the intelligence that was the evidence just couldn't be revealed in open court and could not be used against Mr. Wang. So it really is um there they're twofold. The fact that the deciding judge, the judge that has to decide, you know, whether or not Mr. Wang's gonna get a fair trial is not the judge seeing the evidence. That is all a part of this intelligence to evidence dilemma.
0: So I'm just glad because it's been a while since we'd mentioned that on the podcast. And I know the people like to drink. So you're welcome, everybody.
2: I'm happy to oblige. I can almost always find an intelligence to evidence problem, but that's because Craig was my teacher.
0: Fair. (laughs) You keep it well. So Leah, um, you know, our audience may have heard some noises in the background. That's because you were literally sitting on the floor of the convention floor of the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. And you've been joining us. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for joining us, but you have to go because you are actually about to brief some of the members of the Halifax Security Forum, if, I, if I'm correct?
2: Yes, the Halifax Security Forum Fellows, which is an amazing program where they bring in 12 um, senior military leaders from across uh, the world to do this um, big program. Um, it's incredible. And I get to go talk to them. And I'm very excited. And I'm going to be geeking out about cybersecurity.
0: As if, you know, you weren't already geeking out about until the evidence. So thanks for joining us. But uh, uh, Jess, Mike, you're staying with me. Uh, Leah, we'll chat with you soon. I'm sure we'll have you on very, very soon to talk about something horrible that's happening.
2: Oh boy! Thank you. Cheers.
0: So then, that leaves us with two other cases that we want to get to. Uh, the first one is the Sharif case. It, it's out actually in your where you are, Mike, and it well. Ish in Edmonton, I say. You know, it being in central Canada, I, I'm just thinking of Western Canada as like one big separatist lump these days. Um, not to get too topical humor-ish, but um, this was the case of the individual who ran over several people, including a police officer, in 2017, and it was up on attempted murder charges. And what was what's really interesting about this case? This is someone who. You know, it was said that there was an Islamic State flag in the vehicle when he was doing these attacks, but this was never presented as evidence. And the word terrorism apparently wasn't even mentioned in the trial. Uh, But this person has been convicted now of attempted murder. So uh, what are the big takeaways from this? So from my perspective, I think this is a super interesting case because immediately after the attack
1: happened, the prime minister actually came out and called it an act of terrorism. Um, There was a number of things in terms of why he did that. So certainly the flag was a factor. um, But then there was also allegations that he had espoused, that the the suspect or the convicted Sharif now, um, espoused extremist ideology, which is a really vague term and really open to interpretation, depending on who's, um, you know, extremist for someone is a very, it's a very subjective concept. Um, So taken together, I don't think that there's enough information to suggest that this is actually a terrorist attack, except for what the prime minister said, uh, because presumably he would have had access to a good amount of information to make that judgment. The thing, there's a number of other things that's really interesting about this case, too. And part of it's in the tactics. So around the time that this is happening, there's a number of other terrorist incidents happening around the world that involve very similar to tactics. So uh, it was a stabbing of the police constable, a vehicle ramming by using a rented U-Haul truck. Um, and this is very consistent with a number of other terrorist incidents that have taken happened. For me, though, the real problem, and I understand and Mike will tell us maybe a bit more about some of the logic behind this. I understand why um, you wouldn't necessarily pursue a terrorism charge in this case, but I think the problem with that approach is that it really underrepresents incidents of terrorism in Canada. So the official statistics uh, statistics will only count confirmed charges or convictions of terrorism, which really, in cases like this, if there if there is a significant terrorism motive that we just didn't that just wasn't pursued you may end up with fewer resources dedicated to terrorism issues based on those misleading statistics. And Canadians get a misleading uh, perspective on what the terrorism threat in Canada really is.
0: Mike, do you want to, I'd be really interested in your views from um, the Republic of Alberta.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Okay. I, I don't have a good answer to your, your question, Jess. And so Here, let me walk through a couple of the things we're thinking about. So this maybe is a reminder to go back to the Alexandre Bissonnette case, which is the individual who attacked a mosque in Quebec and killed six people, and he was not charged with terrorism either. And so one of the public justifications for why that might be the case at the time was, look, you've already got him charged for murder. Murder is life in prison, no possibility of parole for 25 years. That could be consecutive in cases of mass murder like that. So I guess it could have been 150 years of no parole. In the end, they randomly picked 42, which, as you can imagine, is not a, divisible by 25. So we're not quite sure how that happened. But nevertheless, that's what ended up there. And so, that was, was, so one of the arguments was, well, maybe if you commit a crime, particularly if you commit something like murder, where there's a higher penalty and we know how to prosecute it and it's cheaper and it's more expedient and we don't have to get into motive and ideology and all this other sort of stuff we got off your computer and try to determine what you were thinking and why you were doing something, right? We just have to do them for the simple murder that we go ahead with that and it's cheaper for everyone, it's faster, and we know we're gonna get conviction, there's gonna be less chance for appeal, and, and, and. So that was one of the justifications, but then we've seen other cases where an individual has committed a attack and was charged with both terrorism and the commission of the attack. So I'm thinking here of uh, both Doug Moshe and Ali cases where, and I forget what the charges were, um, Uh, at
0: was, uh, sorry, just to be clear or remind the audience, Digmush was the case of the woman who, I believe she was a failed traveler, but also she tried to attack people with like a garden hose or something at a Canadian Tire. And then the Ali case is... uh,
3: Uh, The Ali case is the individual who was at the, went to the army base. And so his is a really complicated case where he also uh, attacked and, and by all accounts tried to kill two individuals. But, but he ended up pleading guilty to all the charges because there was essentially agreement that he was going to go uh, not not criminally responsible NCR, which is essentially he will go to a hospital because something else was driving this probably schizophrenia if you're going to guess in the legal system, and but he but he, for some reason uh, they continued with the terrorism charge and so he disputed that so that was that. Um, that case. It, thank you for mentioning it happened in Canadian Tire, by the way. There's a study to be done in Canada about what's going on in Canadian Tires with extremism, because that's about the fourth time we've seen a attack or, or some relationship to Canadian Tire. In I was not aware
0: of this. This is like a whole other podcast, right?
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, and, it is. And the other thing about Canadian Tire too, it's often one of the places where Canadian terrorist suspects like procure some of their goods for the attack, so Canadian Tire features really prominently in a lot of Canadian cases, and Tim Hortons too.
0: And I was going yeah. to say it's the Tim Hortons too. That's that's where all, they're all getting the internet. So um, basically, all of our institutions are under attack.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it is still Canadian after all, all of this. So so to get back to our case, the question we had then was, okay, well, maybe you don't, maybe you just charge someone once they've committed the attack. Maybe the the point of the terrorism offenses really is to be preemptive. Uh, but then we saw these other cases where we thought well they seem to be charged so so maybe that's not the answer and so this goes back to the besanette which is all the reasons you would say don't bother with the terrorism in besanette would apply equally here and again you do have these counterexamples where you'd say well maybe that's not the whole reasoning so i don't at this point i think it's fair to say we don't know what the whole reasoning is uh, you and and then you could speculate so what was it that made this a terrorist attack? And you have to look at the, so was he a member of a terrorist group? It would be one of the initial predicate questions. Sounds like this was lone actor, no formal connection. That's what makes those ones hard for us. And then was it terrorist activity? Well, then you got to prove that he had this ideological component, that he was trying to harm Canada, et cetera, bring about change through violence, et cetera, et cetera. And that might have been really difficult. I'm not sure that a black flag, the black flag of ISIS, is is pretty damning in terms of what his interests are. I'm not sure that tells you much about the motivation for the attack, at least to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the other speculation that surrounded this case is it's not clear that um, that uh, Mr. Sharif is is literate. And so the the one way you go about getting some of this information is you go search their computers, right? What have they written? What have they been reading? That sort of stuff. And if he hasn't written anything, and he's not reading a whole lot, then maybe you have YouTube videos. And then you have a black piece of fabric. And YouTube videos. And then so the question for the prosecution in that case is we've already got him on the attempt murders like we all knew he was going to be found guilty on those. It was pretty obvious from the attacks, uh, frankly, from the fact that he didn't really mount a defense from the evidence presented in court as it went ahead. And, And so... If you've already got him on that, are you going to go ahead with YouTube videos and prolong the trial and try to say, because he watched the YouTube videos, that meant that he had this motive and ideology behind the attacks. And that's a lot to impute from watching a, a YouTube video, if they had that. And so that, that might be, the simpler answer might be, they just didn't think they had enough. And why risk it? Because we, we essentially have him on these attempt murders and other charges.
0: Right. And we, we've talked about that on the podcast before, at least I know Craig and I have, the idea that a lot of our terrorism charges are meant for what we call left of bang, the idea that they're very useful for you know, trying to convict someone who is attempting to commit a terrorist offense, but they are less useful when you can get someone, say, on multiple murder or attempted murder charges. I guess the one place where I always felt like this would be more useful or, or what I've learned about these, you know, terrorism being more useful, say, to a prosecution is in the sentencing. That it is, you know, okay, maybe you can't prove the charge, but you can bring it forward in the sentencing part where it can serve as, uh, and it can augment the sentence of the person who's been convicted.
3: Yeah. So it's, it's a listed under section 718 of the criminal code, which is in a couple of places, essentially our sentencing provisions. It outright says Evidence of a terrorism, terrorist activity or terrorist defense um, is aggravating at sentencing. So the interesting thing about sentencing is you still have to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. So it would still have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt that there was evidence of this. Uh, it hasn't really been tested much because we haven't used it, to my knowledge, in non-terrorism cases. And in fact, even in terrorism cases, it hasn't, going through the transcripts, been applied every time, which makes no sense because it's a mandatory aggravating factor. And so if a mandatory aggravating factor is evidence of a terrorist attack and you're charged with terrorism, surely that is an aggravating factor to be applied on sentencing. Nevertheless, it's not clear here whether they would have enough at sentencing even to go ahead with it having said that and and this was where i think both craig and i and a couple others mentioned at visa why not try there i mean you, you've already got your 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 finding of guilt so you're not undermining the trial at that point you don't have these sort of jordan worries appeal worries um is this going to go back to trial am i undermining it is it going to be appealed for a long time, whatever the case might be, right? We, we, I mean, it could still happen, but you already have your conviction in place with probably a long sentencing. So that's where you might see, as you say, Stephanie, you might see them make note of the uh, evidence of a terrorist offense as an aggravating factor. Having said that, Looks so far, and, and who knows, but it hasn't been mentioned yet. And we've never seen it in Canada for non terrorism offense. We didn't see it in B. which I, I remain surprised about, but who knows. So I wouldn't hold your breath on this one either. That's not to say that's the right decision, I don't, I don't know, but it wouldn't necessarily hold your breath.
0: So the final case I want to bring up today, because I don't think this got a huge amount of media attention, but it seems pretty significant, is the Abdullahi case. Jess, you've been following this, and this has some interesting terrorism finance uh, implications, which, you know, is, is kind of your hobby horse.
1: Yeah, and this is a really interesting case. So yes, it's got the terrorist financing angle, but it's also got something that makes Mike shake his head a fair bit. So we're going to get some good reaction from Mike on this case too, I think. So uh, Abdullahi Ahmed Abdullahi... Was arrested in 2017 following an extradition request from the United States. And interestingly enough, this this case takes place in Edmonton as well. So I don't know what was happening in Edmonton, um, but there's a hotbed of terrorism issues around 2017.
0: Um, kind of mediocre terrorist, though. I
1: like, mean, they're Canadian, I'm just so saying. yes.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> so he was arrested in 2017 following this extradition request, and. What the United States has said is that he's actually financed the travel of three Canadians and two Americans to join the Islamic State. And all of this stems back from um, a January 2014 armed robbery that was committed at a jewelry store in Edmonton. And the proceeds of that crime were apparently used to finance the travel of these individuals to Syria. So he was arrested in 2017 in Canada, then charges were laid against him about the armed robbery in Edmonton. His trial was supposed to go forward in January of 2020, so in next, basically next month or month and a half from now. But instead, he was actually those charges were stayed, and he's now been extradited to the United States to face essentially material support charges in the U.S. Um, some of the details of the case are really interesting from a financing perspective, so I'm going to make everyone listen to them. So he sent an electronic funds transfer, uh, so an cross border transfer of money. Trying to like not get too technical in the language, of uh, thirty one hundred dollars to one of the individuals. That money paid for the travel of two people to Turkey. So it's a really interesting case in which you can see the, provi- the commission of a crime, the pr- how that crime was used to generate money, then the transmission of those funds to individuals who then ultimately use them for terrorist purposes to join a terrorist organization. He also sent money to individuals in the Gaziantep area of Turkey. Um, and at the time where this was happening, that's, there was a very common transit point um, into Islamic State territory. So it's very common for individuals to use petty crime to finance travel to the Islamic State. Armed robbery is much less common. Right. But it's, we've as,
0: seen a lot of credit card fraud. Oh, yeah, yeah. Scamming charities, fake yeah. charities, things like that. But actually going and robbing something is pretty dramatic. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Um, and then he actually wasn't arrested for that at the time anyway, so that's kind of interesting too. Um, and then, it's, But it's also less common to finance the travel of others at this point in time. Like, it did happen, but basically what we had here in Canada was an individual who was a, finance, a terrorist financier, who was financing the travel of other people for, for terrorist activity. Um, most of the time we've seen criminal activity to support self-travel. And this is where I get to bring Mike in, because there were no Canadian terrorist financing charges, and this trial did not go forward in Canada for his armed robbery. So I think Mike has some views on this that he may want to share with us.
3: Sure. Give
0: us give us your views, Mike. Give us your
3: views. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let me try to put it in context. And this is going to be all speculation because like all these cases, we just don't have, we don't have the background information to know why people are making decisions, right? So, so... Actually, before I start, let me give a huge shout out to Rob Curry uh, at Shulik Law Dow because he has been a good friend of the
0: podcast. He's been on the podcast, so yeah, Yeah. definitely a good guy. Rob Curry music on Twitter,
3: yes, and and he is he is one of the leading probably. one of the leading researchers in Canada, certainly he's got the book if you want a book on transnational law. And so he is very much concerned with these sort of transnational issues. And he has been all over this case and and making sure it's in the media and frankly, making sure it's on our radar as well. So so huge shout out to Rob Curry for his continuing great work on this. So the, the question is, as Jess says, why not charge them in Canada, right? And th- there are I some- I gotta
0: say, I have that question too. This seems crazy.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a reasonable, I'm, I'm sure people are asking that. And so there are some answers to that, right? So um, so the U.S. Are, are just, for lack of a better term, this is not the legal term, but pushier about this kind of stuff, right? So we see a lot of uh, drug crimes that sort of they're the individuals acting on both sides of the border, weapons, same thing, apparently. that So uh, the U.S. is sort of used to, their prosecution offices are used to being a little pushier about getting things to happen in the U.S. It's sort of cultural, it's... Um, it's what they're trained and sort of uh, pushed to do. Sometimes, uh, frankly speaking, you know, the head prosecution of the states can be elected, so it can look good in a way that you know we don't care as long as the person uh, goes to justice. Their their sentences can be longer. So, and and finally, it, if you look back to our cases, at least the ones we where we sort of have a sense of how it was, we someone came on our radar an awful lot of seeding from the Brits and the Americans of our investigations, right? So, which, which is to say, you know, the, the Section 38 stuff comes up for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is a lot of information coming in from foreign services that are telling us to keep an eye on this person. And so if the alternative is to prosecute him in Canada and then have this intel to evidence problem... Where most of the information, at least at the beginning, to see to warrant, et cetera, et cetera, is coming from the Americans, anyways, then why not avoid that whole problem and send them to the U.S. Particularly if they're already wanting to prosecute and they have reason to prosecute and they're going to give harsher penalties and and and. So there are reasons to send them abroad, right? And then then just you know the relationship with the U.S. So it's not unjustifiable by any means. The counter to that is this is a crime happening out of Canada with an individual in Canada. We need to be able to take responsibility for criminal actions that originate here. That is particularly the case. And so that is is Jess and Rob's point. And and I think the point that Jess and I would, would add to that is that's particularly the case with money crimes, in this case, terrorist financing, because we have not done a great job of prosecuting. Terrorist financing, in particular. How do we know that? Well, we know we only have two cases so far. One of terrorist prosecutions uh, uh, for financing alone, and that was an individual who was given six months in jail, which is the lowest sentence we've ever had in Canada for terrorism for an adult. And then we have one other case, which was Kawaja original, and it was just you know one of a host, and they never really got into the financing element. The other side of that is we've been criticized by the FATF the CIA, the Pentagon, uh, I think in the past ceases. Sorry, right,
0: um, it's the Financial Action Track. Uh, task Force. Task Force, right.
3: Yeah. So so we have been criticized by quite a few bodies for not getting after terrorist financing, a lot of the money laundering, a lot of the money issues, uh, sanctions, which is something else that we will talk about probably down the road. So we have an incentive not just to take responsibility for what's happening on our territory with our people but we also have a responsibility to show that we can do it with respect to these crimes in particular where we haven't had a great record and and we don't look great internationally it would be a responsible thing for us to say you know what we can do this now the next question is is can we actually do it and, and so that might be but that's not a that's not a good answer right it's it's an answer which is to say well send it to the us cuz they're going to get a, <laughs> a conviction and we're not convinced that we're capable of getting a conviction. I don't know. Uh, that is certainly a reason to send them to the US, but that's not a very heartening reason. So those are some the, of the considerations.
0: Right. So being incompetent, not a good reason not to do something. Yeah, and
3: this Generally, case, yes. Yeah,
1: And this case is so interesting because it reminds me a lot of the Banasawi case where um, this is an individual, and in, I think it was the Scarborough area, who was involved in a bunch of terrorist activity. And the United States actually had him come down into New York so that he, the FBI essentially lured him down to the United States so that they could arrest him there. And then he was tried and convicted of terrorism activity in in the United States. But the actual activity, you know, terrorist financing, material support activities, they all happened in Canada. Like he was in Canada when all of this activity happened. And yet still all of the convictions and his his, his incarceration now is taking place in the States.
0: If there's one theme here that that's like across this podcast today, and I it's not always easy to draw a theme, but here it's like we really need to hashtag make Canadian National Security Prosecutions great again, if they were great ever. And um I worry that make you know, them happen. Make them happen. Exactly. And and you know, I it's not a sexy topic. It's not something that I think really riles people up. We just got an election, it wasn't really a thing, but this really does seem to be something that is important, and that we still have a lot of kinks to work out of the system
1: absolutely and I you know there was that election promise from the Liberals to have what it was it the director of, of prosecutions for terrorism or national security things you guys can correct me on that um, is that going to
3: make any difference here
0: in, in this case I, i'm going to defer to the lawyer on that
3: <laughs> well I, I don't know, but let, let me jump in on that one because uh, th- there's a couple of points I want to make so one is I, I think, I think we're, we're sort of not sure about whether we're not great on this. So I'm not quite willing to say it's that we struggle with them per se. So if I look at our conviction I used rate. Off- you supporting big lawyer right now. I'm support. Yes, way to go, all the lawyers. Yeah, I, I'm fully <laughs> going to be cheesy and support the lawyers. So here's right. what I'll say: we, we have great prosecutors in this country. We have great security agents across various security agencies, that's like police and non-police. We have great defense lawyers and judges to ensure that our trials are um, safe and secure and fair in outcome. It, it, in general, right? We have we have a conviction rate for terrorism prosecutions that is in line with all other serious crimes, which is to say, at least on the ones going forward, we're doing as well as you could have possibly expect if you define well as securing the convictions when we need to. We have very few non-convictions. So here's the question then. So why are we complaining about this? And, and to me, the bigger question is not that we, we can't do it, but that we seem for some reason, in some cases, unwilling to try. Like before we say we can't do it, we should try and fail a whole bunch of times, right? And that might even tell, I mean, heck, so you failed. It, that might even tell us why we're failing and where we're failing and, and give or, give us better insight into how to improve the situation. So I'm not willing to say we're not good at it. I am willing to say it's starting to look an awful lot like we're very conservative about whether we're willing to go ahead with something, whether we, you know, are we, are we being a little afraid to fail in, in these cases in a way that the U S is just plowing ahead with these things. And I think at least to me right now, that's where more of the problem looks. Cause when I look at the numbers and the individuals involved, I see no problems with um, our prosecution and defense and so on.
0: Well, we are running out of time rapidly guys. I want to thank you for helping us skip, hop, jump, despair, over four cases today. Uh, Mike, I, the, you know, I appreciate the, the shout out to the institutions um, at, the end of, at the end of your talk there. So, um, but there's so much more that I'm sure we'll be coming back to. I also wanna give a shout out to Leah who had to leave because um, I, I'm sure podcasting from the, the floor of the convention center was maybe not the way she anticipated spending her Friday, but uh, it was the time we could all get together. So thanks everyone.
3: My pleasure. Thank you as always, Stephanie.